uh, Rector Shuking, Minister President Krishna, Lord Mayor Young, Tonishta Simon Kovney, ladies and gentlemen. May I begin as I have been invited to recognize our own ancient language, Leipzig, Leipzig, May I just say, as I have just said, I'm very pleased to be back in Leipzig. I have been in Leipzig. This is my third time, but my first time as, as President of Ireland. I want to thank you for inviting me here today. And may I thank you for those very warm words of welcome. And of course, as all of us have been in Ireland in government and as president and the people of Ireland, we are very appreciative of the support we have been receiving in present circumstances uh, from the people of Germany. But my thanks to all of you for coming to this address this morning. And I'm very grateful to the students who may have taken time out from examination preparation to be here. I spent a great deal of time in universities, but people will tell you as well, it was the happiest time of my life. I uh, very much enjoyed uh, teaching, not necessarily the administration of universities. But, uh, <laughs> So therefore, it would be wrong to call this an address. It is indeed a lecture that I have prepared. But my thanks, too, to the members of the Irish community in Saxony and indeed in neighboring states who have traveled here today. All good universities share a commitment to learning, to building from past achievements into future thinking. Many, near Auli Maxima, boast grand halls and prestigious historic buildings, but few, however, have the courage and vision to create such an happened, wonderful space as this polynomial. It is a magnificent achievement, and I salute the university, the city, and the state of Saxony for creating this space which so harmoniously marries the ancient and the modern, the religious, as you have heard, and the secular. I'm told that in his Leipzig years, the great composer Johann Sebastian Bach, with his respect for the long reach of time and with a concern for what might endure and come to be regarded as universal, lost interest in preparing new music for the then Paulinum Church, which stood on this site, one of four churches for which he was responsible. He was frustrated, we are told, by the fact that the city would not make more resources available to him. And I certainly appreciate Bach's lament, but I am sure that the gifted composer would himself approve this magnificent achievement. As evidenced by the Paulinum, creating the new in the shadow of the past, building for the future, while recognizing all that has gone before, and using the materials available in present time, is a challenge well known and well understood in Leipzig. An ethical engagement with the past in all its complexity is an unavoidable moral, but I believe enabling task that allows the light to illuminate the present, enables us to see the imagined forms of what could be better in the Kantian sense and invite us to a more harmonious existence 
Help us, it were. Help us, surely, in seeking a future of fulfilment. That great word in philosophy. This is an issue that I, as President of Ireland, have sought to address on several occasions in the recent past. It is an ongoing challenge for all of us as citizens and must also be an issue that is properly addressed and given due consideration, I believe, by member states and indeed within the European Union itself in the unfolding architecture of its institutions, asking of their relationship its adequacy for their aspirations and concerns, how decisions echo, fail to echo, or are dissonant on the European street. As I have said, I visited Leipzig in the past and am aware of its cultural heritage. And indeed, the city of Leipzig has played a significant role, not only in German history, but in European history. But this visit, as I have said, the one I make today is the first ever state or official visit by an Irish president, Uchtran Heron, to Saxony, or indeed anywhere in the eastern part of Germany other than Berlin. So I truly hope that my visit will initiate a renewed and deeper relationship both with you and your neighbouring states. My visit as the President of Ireland reflects Ireland's commitment to the deepening and widening of the Irish presence throughout Germany. Quite frankly, our wish is to forge and deepen new friendships. So may I acknowledge, too, the special role of this university in promoting and protecting, as I've just heard, minority languages. And the phrase minority itself is contentious. I know that this is an important seat of Serbian studies, and I'm delighted that it has also become a centre for the study of the Irish language in Germany. Milibuikos. Our individual languages enrich the tapestry of European life, each in their own unique manner, and we have a duty of care to them that is intergenerational for ensuring that they remain alive and vibrant for future generations. That we have the Irish language in use in Ireland and on the curriculum today is due to the assistance given by a number of German scholars to the first president, so the man who would become the first president of Ireland, Dr. Douglas and Dr. Douglas de Hieder, among whom those his friends was Dr. Kuna Meyer, who died here in Leipzig in 1919. <coughs> So may I acknowledge Professor Sabine Asmus and her students who are with us today for all their efforts in this regard. I think I am honoured also that after the reception here this morning, I will have the opportunity to visit the St. Nicholas Church and pay tribute to the courage of those civilian protesters 30 years ago, whose courage and determination paved the way for what would become a seismic geopolitical shift across our continent with their peaceful actions leading to the reunification of Germany and to a new era of partnership in Europe. Now, once again, we are at a significant moment in the European Union. We are called upon in the face of new challenges, some within, some others external. We are challenged to renew our commitment to be together as a union, to embrace, if you like, an adequate discourse on the changes we urgently need to make, changes that will require courage if we are to defend the space of intellectual rigour 
allow freedom of discourse, facilitate policy change. And as I talk to you this morning about the future of Europe, may I suggest some radical changes we need to make in our thinking and our policies. It is my belief that there is an urgent need to make new connections, as you have had, between ecology, economics, and ethics. And I think not only for the sake of the European Union, but for the sake of the sustainability of our shared, fragile planet. It is for these reasons that we must forge a new path on which we can travel together in the interests of all of our citizens. And my critique today and my proposals go beyond adjustment or recognizing a dimension or the mere placing of an ecological or humanitarian lens on existing public policies or even on existing economic development paradigms. For I believe such an exercise has been tried given rhetorical expression and has not succeeded. No authentic structuring of such an approach by way of delivery has happened or has been experienced in the formal and institutional discourse. And most important, it has not found its way to the European street, where trust in words and actions needs urgently to be recovered to achieve a convincing authenticity of policy. We have, as a global community, to respond to the consequences of climate change, the need to achieve sustainability. We've agreed this in 2015. To achieve a radical shift to a new economic paradigm in a decarbonized world. An eco-social political economy perspective is required to achieve what we have agreed as principles. And as I am speaking in a university, may I stress that the required paradigm shift needs a space of epistemological freedom in our institutes of learning, by which I mean staff and students being allowed to think, it teach, teachers given freedom to teach at least pluralistically and fundamentally free to critique a current orthodox capitalist system that is unregulated and unaccountable in so many of its parts and in its consequences for society and social policy. Change is not possible if its outline is not allowed to be considered in a deliberative way, as Habermas might put it, and its principles taught. However, necessary change is being resisted by a combination of those frightened, rendered mute, or stricken with intellectual lethargy, by wielders of corporate power, opponents of state regulation, and that minority of citizens who are happy to have gained access to an ever more insatiable accumulation process. The scale of the change that is required to my mind is similar to that which occurred in the late 1980s and early 90s in Central and Eastern Europe. Similar perhaps too to that invocation of a moral future of peace in scale, scope, and significance, as that advocated in the Ventetene Manifesto in its day by Altiero Spinelli and Ernesto Rossi. That statement written by Spinelli and Rossi in 1941, which became the program of the Italian-based European Federalist movement, 
Its extraordinary vision spoke of human needs and purpose beyond borders, and it had at its core objective the creation of a solid international-minded state as its main purpose, and then having one national acceptance, be free to be used as an instrument for achieving international unity. European federalism and world federalism are presented in that Vantatena manifesto as a means to prevent future wars. It was that that gave it urgency in its day, and the manifesto is widely regarded as the birth of European federalism. And then, too, in its day, in its turn, the much-quoted Schumann Declaration reminded us that Europe will not be made all at once or according to a single plan. Now, I'm well aware that there is a tendency at times among some of the dispirited to look with nostalgia at such statements and recall the days of the pioneers of the European Union, Robert Schumann, Conrad Adenauer, Jan Monnet, and others, as moments of inspiration that have gone, when such suggested new ideas could catch the mood and become a reality. Yes, it is important to recall how they came together to share a purpose that was drawn from a diversity of interests and transcended those interests, yet sought to plant the seeds for peaceful cooperation and political union. However, we need to consider nostalgia with care. Nostalgia is often our response when we feel inadequate in the face of new challenges some sort of prelude to a confession of failure or desperation, thinking we might, in the absence of any perceived or earned hope from present intellectual work, deal with the future by reaching back into the past, as though the tools of yesterday might equip us for the needs of today and tomorrow. The onus is on each generation to invent, even to bring into being the tools for its analysis and existence in the complexity of its time. And I think, too, I take that to be one of the, that is one of the greatest achievements of Jürgen Habermas as he broke away from what might have been the suggested pessimism uh, from, from Theodore Adorno's work. We are neither at the end of history or of ideas. A hubristic conceit of Francis Fukuyama, scandalously shared by too many scholars, and sadly insufficiently withdrawn from the discourse. But there is a further danger, of course, of our ever-present, of being given a rationalis- of the present being given a rationalization by some distorted or limited version of the past. In an invocation of origins that were truly, in fact, mixed and motivational terms. But however one looks at such texts as the Schumann Declaration, it stands as example, a challenge to all future generations to anticipate and adapt to changing circumstances and to meet new demands as needed with courage. Our challenges now must draw forth a shared perspective because of our interdependency, an interdependency that goes beyond issues of trade. There are, there are 
There are shared challenges requiring a shared response that again goes beyond borders. And resigning to any narrow view of nationalism speaks, not as it might have been in the past of a nation's demand for freedom for its people, but rather now often, perhaps in desperation, used as a defense of narrow interests, interests that facilitate the continuation of inequality and the unrestrained accumulation by the few the cost of the many. And neither in international relations can we accept the preparations for war between the most heavily armed as a substitute for engaged and authoritative diplomacy. And we must resist the rhetorical flourishes or indeed the renewed preparations for war as an alternative to peaceful coexistence and diplomacy. Sustaining peace, achieving peace, is why the United Nations was formed. And like Germany, Ireland is a staunch supporter of the United Nations. Membership of the United Nations has played an important role in our development at home and abroad. And both of us, through the United Nations, not only support a fair rules-based order in international affairs, we exist, survive, and prosper because of it. And together, in peacekeeping, disarmament, sustainable development, climate, nutrition, human rights, and humanitarian assistance, the list of that which we share is extensive, and we have striven to match our words and actions with funding, offering support to multilateral structures. And while the United Nations system has flaws, Ireland and Germany share a conviction that there is no better way to meaningfully address the common opportunities and threats that face us. It is our best available space, and we must defend and support it. I don't come to Leipzig to bring to these ideas that I will outline in a moment because I firmly believe that the task of envisioning or of renewing Europe, of future-proofing the Union, cannot take place exclusively in meetings organized in the capitals of member states. There must be a European conversation that is widely diverse and inclusive, and it must be supported by those institutions and citizens that have been given the privileged space of intellectual work. We have obligations. Europe is not in any exclusive way a union of capital cities, but of all the people in our cities, towns, villages, and rural hinterlands. And between our peoples, we may have achieved a capacity to communicate in modern times. But in current conditions, it is an individualized, privatized experience of communication, often ephemeral, frequently trivial, one that cannot replace the previous and now fragile shared world of public service broadcasting, pluralism in the media, public speech in the agora. We are made to discuss our present circumstances and possibly shared futures in these new conditions. But we should not be pessimistic. We have a resource in that respect for intellectual work in addition to the benefits of reason, the music of the heart that Germany and Ireland share in their respect for ideas. And that is as important as sharing in innovation and trade. But then all of this sharing, innovation, trade, and intellectual ideas and culture hangs together. What better place to discuss then the future of Europe than here in Leipzig, where the great German poet Friedrich Schiller 
first composed his wonderful lyric, An Ode to Joy, with a version of some of his words put to music by Beethoven for the fourth movement of his masterful Ninth Symphony. That beautiful, rousing expression of musical brilliance, which was adopted as the anthem of our shared union. And drawing on that spirit, may I suggest a fundamental reflection then on what is meant when we use in our discourse the words Europe and European. Are we merely talking about the geographical coordinates of the continent and peripheral island states that comprise Europe as it is known in its physical sense? Are we talking of a block of consumers, a trade block? How often when we speak of a European Union are we speaking of a social Europe? In other words, what does it mean to those of us living now and generations yet to live in what we call a union to be European in the early 21st century? What set of shared values and ethics do we as Europeans aspire to uphold, defend, build upon and promote across our member states and indeed out into the world? Despite the many historic achievements of our continent, many centuries of which were tarnished by war and suffering, the European Union today still retains and has available to it through its legacy of thought, a commitment to intellectual discourse, an openness to undo the trammels of empire and struggle against imperialism, a unique opportunity and responsibility to assert and, where necessary, reassert its founding values of democracy, cohesion, shared prospects, human rights, the rule of law, in an increasingly interdependent world in which these values are challenged. These values are neither abstract, nor are they optional extras, nor are they confined by borders. They go to our very core and must be respected and upheld by all member states. And central to these values and their vindication is the concept and circumstance of free movement of people, exercising their hopes, bringing with them their stories and their cultural endowments. And what a great, great gesture Erasmus was in that regard. Indeed, migration inwards and outwards has been a key aspect of European history for centuries. Migration was taking place long before the origins of the common market and the European economic community. Migration inwards and outwards has shaped who we are as Europeans, our influences, our values, our sensibilities. Indeed, it has been part of our prosperity. However, this prosperity, fueled by assumptions of unlimited, ever-accelerated growth and of an infinite source of resources, cannot avoid the consequences it has helped occasion, including the current impact of climate change. And it is instructive, perhaps, if I may briefly suggest to stand back and look at the features of that period that has had such an impact on our planet and ourselves. The Anthropocene era in which we now live has created a new set of existential challenges that threaten humankind's survival on the planet. And if we consider the onset of the most recent consequences of the Anthropocene to have commenced at the start of the Industrial Revolution, sometime around 1760, we can trace how this period was the genesis of a cycle of events that have resulted in the ecological crisis which we now face. The Industrial Revolution, which began in Great Britain, resulted in that country controlling a global trading empire 
with colonies in North America and the Caribbean, and with political influence on the Indian subcontinent. The development of trade and the rise of commerce were among the major contributors to the Industrial Revolution. It marks a major turning point in history. Almost every aspect of daily life was influenced by this transition to the industrial way of life in some way. In particular, of course, average income and population began to exhibit unprecedented and sustained growth. And it is in this period, too, that we see the rise of the industrial city, such as Manchester. Every aspect of life was changed, not just the changed connection between home and workplace, but time and space were redefined, even in relation to matters of love and private life itself, colonized, as Michel Foucault might have put it. The Industrial Revolution on continental Europe came a little later than in Great Britain, and based in honest leadership, in chemical research in the universities and industrial laboratories, Germany, which was unified in 1871, became dominant in the world's chemical industry in the late 19th century. The focus in Germany was the support of industrialization, and so heavy lines crisscrossed the Ruhr and other industrial districts, providing good connection to the major ports of Hamburg and Bremen. Why did the Industrial Revolution originate in Europe? Economic historian Joel Makur has argued that political fragmentation, the presence of a large number of European states, made it possible for heterodox ideas to thrive as innovators, entrepreneurs, ideologues, and heretics could easily flee to a neighboring state in the event that any one state would try to suppress their ideas and activities or their imagination. And this flux is what set Europe apart from the technologically advanced large unitary empires of China and India, for example, by providing through such migration, innovation, and renewal of intellect, insatiable curiosity, and investigation of technos, how it served, as Mocker puts it, as an insurance against economic and technological stagnation. China both had a printing press and a movable type, and India had several levels of scientific and technological achievement, as had Europe in 1700. Yet the Industrial Revolution would occur in Europe, not China or India. In Europe, political fragmentation was coupled with an integrated market for ideas, where Europe's intellectuals used the lingua franca of Latin and had a shared intellectual basis in Europe's classical heritage and the pan-European institution of the Republic of Letters. Peter, historian Peter Stearns has suggested, Europe's industrial revolution stemmed in great part from Europe's ability to draw disproportionately on Europe's resources. The new world of industry was inextricably linked, of course, to colonization, empire domination, and an ideology that would frequently suggest that certain cultures were inferior or at least backward. It would be a great error then, too, to fail to take into account the immense contribution of that body of philosophical work which was beginning to appear in print. You may be relieved to say that I will leave to another occasion an analysis of the combination of dispossession, conquest, exploitation, domination, and cultural extinction that served as background to all of this. It would take me too long. 
The consequences, I think, of this acquisition of, uh, of, of and exploitation of resources to which I've made reference, however, are now all too apparent, as we see the ecological and social impacts of the exploitation of what were, after all, the world's finite natural endowments. But just as there were in their day in the Enlightenment some voices against empire, such as Diderot, Immanuel Kant, and Johann Gottfried Herder, there were dissenting voices too during the period I have just described that are usually presented as being mostly from the arts. During the Industrial Revolution, an intellectual and artistic hostility towards the new industrialization developed associated with the Romantic movement. Its critique was of what was emerging as a version of life was to be, rather than what it might be, a life that included the search for beauty in form and a beauty to be celebrated in nature and rural instrument. The literature reveals this in very much, even in relation to sexual encounters in the literary form. Romanticism privileged the traditionalism of rural life and recoiled against the upheavals caused by industrialization, urbanization, and the wretchedness, as it suggested, of the working classes. Its major exponents in English, and we Irish now have responsibility in relation to this language of Shakespeare and Chaucer. Its major exponents in English included the artist and poet, William Blake and poets William Wordsworth, John Keats, Lord Byron, and of course, the wonderful Percy Bush Shelley. The movement stressed the importance of nature in art and language, in contrast to monstrous machines and factories, the dark satanic mills of Blake's poem, and did those feet in ancient times. Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, reflected concerns that scientific progress might be double-edged. And none of this was essentially entirely new, because there had been a reaction to Francis Bacon's 16th-century suggestion, I lead to you nature and her children in bondage for your use and your curiosity. French Romanticism, likewise, was highly critical of industry. In a later period, it would move further from a realism of rural existence towards an anti-urban myth of an idealized rural existence, creating what Raymond Williams would call a false pastoral. In its most reactionary form, it would be used to fuel an anti-urban ideology. I think of Josiah Strong's writing, God created man in a garden, the city is a result of the fall. It is interesting that in the current debate on the future of the European Union, the resources of those ideas that are available in the literary imagination, in culture in general, are rarely articulated, even recognized. And I believe it is a neglect for which the Union has paid a heavy price. Ideas matter. For example, it would be impossible to teach social or political theory and its connection to economics and policy without reference to the Frankfurt School in all its periods. For its scholars have produced, if you like, some of the very best critiques of the connection of economy, self, and society. As empires were formed and bolstered during the Industrial Revolution, Europe then witnessed a rise of nationalism 
in the 19th century, a wave of romantic nationalism swept the European continent, transforming its countries and its peoples. The invention of a symbolic national identity became the concern of racial, ethnic, or linguistic groups throughout Europe as they struggled to come to terms with the rise of mass politics, the decline of the traditional and most often exploitative social elites, popular discrimination, and xenophobia. By the end of the period, the ideals of European nationalism had been exported worldwide and were now beginning to develop and both compete and threaten the empires ruled by colonial European nation states. And the future of Europe would benefit from an examination of that period as, and for it to be transacted by European states. The period that followed from the detritus of competing and irrational empires came the rise of extreme nationalism and fascism and Europe's descent into two catastrophic world wars. And this should alert us to the insidious dangers that can result from narrow nationalist movements uninformed by democratic or utopian ideals, especially when there is a confluence of economic and social turmoil serving as background. This brief review, excuse me for it, of European history over the past two and a half centuries should remind us that there was a mind of Europe before the Industrial Revolution, a Europe of life and the spirit of letters, of music and philosophy before the Europe of coal and steel, a Europe that flourished without the overzealous and insatiable exploitation of natural resources. After all, the commercial revolution that preceded the Industrial Revolution for instant, was marked by an increase in general commerce and in the growth of financial services, such as banking, insurance, and investment. And at that period, there was even a morally informed literature on the ethics of transaction and commerce. History then leads us to believe that there can indeed be a Europe beyond coal and steel, as we continue in the Anthropocene era, there can be such a change as gives us hope that there can be a green Europe that can continue to provide for its peoples without damaging irrevocably the fine ecological balance of the planet and its 7.5 billion human inhabitants and 8.7 million diverse species, a billion species, a version of society combining ecology, economy, and culture that is rooted in social justice, humanitarianism, and ethics. To achieve such a vision of Europe, I suggest again, little less than a paradigm shift in social theory, policy, and practice is required. And in new emerging literature, Consideration of a new ecological social paradigm as is needed, based on economic heterodoxy, is available to us in such scholarly work as that of Professor Ian Goff and others, work that recognises the limits of the world's natural resources, as well as the role that unrestrained greed has played in creating the climate crisis. In his book, Heat, Greed and Human Need, I wish it were in the hands of all students in the social sciences, frankly. Professor Goff outlines how an alternative paradigm rooted in the concept of human need over insatiability 
The paradigm here outlines champions principles of gender equality, income, wealth, and resource redistribution, and a reconfigured social consumption and investment strategy that transfers resources and technology appropriately from developed countries to developing countries as the key means to achieve this eco-social welfare state. The eco-social policies that underpin such an economic paradigm must concurrently pursue both equity and social justice, which is a challenge to some green movements, as well as sustainability and sufficiency goals. And it requires a revised activist innovation state with substantial state investment and an acceptance of greater regulation and planning. Furthermore, socioeconomic measures are also required to negate any adverse impacts of the ecological transition for the poorest in society and to ameliorate rather than threaten or deepen growing levels of inequality. Difficult the transition may be, but it offers an approach that is garnering support as our best gesture towards intergenerational justice. Goff's eco-social political economy emphasizes responsible economics, understanding that the concept of accelerated economic growth ad infinitum is inherently flawed. And in doing so, scholars such as Ian Goff are recovering a discourse and a political economy discipline that had, in fact, fallen prey to an uncritical embrace of neoliberal reforms that had substituted instrument for method and method for any theoretical consideration. It advocates for an economic model of pluralism, which emphasizes the finite nature of the Earth's resources, and obviously the role that rich nations must play in ameliorating the crisis in which we find ourselves. As Goff puts it, consumption and consumption-based emissions ignored by the green growth agenda must be given equal priority in the rich world. Issues of global equity, almost entirely absent from international climate negotiations so far, must be discussed and confronted. Affluence has a class as well as a national dimension. <coughs> Another writer, Kay Rawat, in her book Donut, Donut Economics, is yet another example of those works that provide a powerful conceptual framework emphasizing social and ecological boundaries in humanity's 21st century crisis to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. In other words, this scholarship offers hope by showing us how we can, as a global community, ensure that no one falls short on life essentials, from food and housing to health care and participation, while ensuring that collectively we do not overshoot our pressure on Earth's life-supporting systems on which we fundamentally depend, such as a stable climate, fertile soils, and a protective ozone layer. As then to what our current position is, and returning to the European Union and our shared future. While the European Union <coughs> has imposed binding emissions targets for 2020 and 2030 in all its member states, we must now go further in Europe and plan for full decarbonisation of our economies by 2050, encouraging the rest of the world to follow suit and urging in the strongest possible terms 
the USA to reconsider its decision to lead the International Paris Agreement on Climate Change, a decision which I have already described elsewhere as inex inexcusable, I believe in informed, profoundly myopic, and threatens future generations with catastrophic climate consequences. In dealing with socioeconomic impacts of climate change, we must be conscious always of the need for a just transition of, for workers and communities to ensure that we are all part of a sustainable low-carbon economy and benefit from decent and green jobs. In Ireland and Germany, this will mean that those impacted by the closure of unsustainable carbon-intensive electricity production, for example, must be offered reskilling opportunities to enable them to find suitable jobs in other areas, such as the green economy, or opportunities with sustainable incomes in other parts of society. And beyond that, there must be at least such good social policies as ensure no loss of citizen participation rights. And this acquisition of skills is yet another debate. Skills attached to the person, not simply features of the labour market only, but part of the transacted property of the upskilled person. Globalisation, as we have experienced it then, pursued without consideration as to social impact or consequences, I suggest has had an accelerated negative impact on climate change. More goods being produced and consumed, more transport of goods from longer distances, shorter production obsolescence cycles, more consumerist and materially driven society as a result. All of these aspects of globalization have come at a significant cost in terms of the impact on finite natural resources and related carbon emissions. And those who benefit from such a flawed model are certainly not the public, now or in the future. It is a minority who will benefit in two, in defense of an insatiable, unregulated accumulation, will ignore the consequences of their model, be it in climate or social terms. A minority that is often footloose, existing beyond the reach of regulation of state or parliament. And the growth of an unaccountable form of speculative capital activity can dislodge even the best efforts of governments. And surely this must change. Democracy itself requires it. For the growth of what is unaccountable is not an exercise in any version of freedom. It is, in fact, a threat to democracy. And it is a source of encouragement that after decades of mainstream economic commentary, championing the belief in the inevitable and often extreme unregulated versions of the market, privatization, and a reduced role of the state, we now appear to be experiencing a turning point in the economics discourse, thanks to insightful contributions such as those I have mentioned already, but also people such as Mariana Mazzucato and Sylvia Walby. Mazzucato and her books, The Entrepreneurial State and the Value of Everything, effectively rebukes the austerity-fueled worldview that in order to restore growth, for example, after the 2008 financial crisis, reducing deficits by cutting public spending is fundamental. She argued instead that government spending in key investment areas, such as education and research and development, is a key driver of economic growth. Thankfully, I must say, orthodox institutions such as the International Monetary Fund have slowly evolved their thinking on austerity as a strategic one-purpose tool, believing that such policies can cause harm and be self-defeating. Keynes had argued over 80 years ago, 
If governments cut spending during an economic slump, a short-lived recession can become a fully-fledged depression, precisely what occurred in Ireland when the economic recession of 2008 turned into an economic depression in 2009 and an economic recovery delayed until 2014. I want to say just something finally about German scholarship. But Bulmer and Patterson in their book, Germany and the European Union, Europe's Reluctant Hegemon, argue that Germany, given its modern institutional contracts, export performance and influence, as well as its long record of fiscal solidity and attractiveness of its social market economy model, had and continues to have the capacity to be a natural leader on economic matters, giving leadership, I suggest, in this new economic paradigm. Many decades before the emergence of contemporary political economists, such as I have mentioned, the spiritual fathers of creative thinking in the public sector, John Maynard Keynes and Polanyi, called on policymakers not just to think in terms of economic policy exclusively, about counter-cyclical spending as a way to reduce the impacts of recessions and avoid overheating economies, but also to think strategically to identify which investments can help shape citizens' long-term prospects for the better. Polanyi went on to argue in that wonderful book, The Great Transformation, that far from being in the grip of any inevitabilities, free markets are indeed the products of government interventions, outcomes of public and private actions. That astute observation has been conveniently cast aside in much of the austerity-based neoliberal commentary analysing the recent economic crisis. And indeed, we know how widely disseminated in Europe was the notion that there was only one model. The instrument that is the state must, as it just be, repossessed by its citizens if we are to transform societies for the benefit of the citizenry, for the state still holds the capacity and much of the resources for democratic control of a nation's economy and finances. And this is but one form of an epistemological challenge to the neoclassical economic orthodoxy that espouses with rigidity the assumptions of rationality and individualism as the equilibrium nexus. The role of the state needs to be defined anew, as well as the concept of sovereignty, in such a way that it's shared, can, such a way that it can flow for the benefit of citizens beyond borders, can, because it is a transition taking place in several countries, have a comparative and regional character, one that is exemplary to global economic systems. The concept of sovereignty, defined with responsibility beyond national borders, could be even more powerfully defined as one requiring a consciousness beyond borders in order to avoid falling into the trap of a depeopled technocracy or in its ignoring of human feeling. Nations, after all, live by and, and live by and they share sentiments of the heart as well as much by what is perceived as rational inevitabilities. And it is this sensibility and capacity that often obstructs the ambition of technocracy. We must have the courage to examine the structural basis of the issues which face us. 
most proximately the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom, the election of, the, in, of Donald Trump in the United States, the growth of nationalist and anti-immigration parties in Europe, most recently the Yellow Vest insurrection in France, all represent what has been described in the media as a populist reaction to rising inequality, stagnant incomes and economic security, which have become the dominant trends in many industrialised countries. And John Evans' writing in Social Europe puts it like this. They reflect a growth of relative deprivation, where significant segments of populations feel that whereas others have gained from economic and social change, they and their families have lost out, and they fear a future of even greater security, insecurity. Sharpening divisions appear after decades of the weakening of intermediary institutions, notably trade unions, whose economic role was to act as a brake on rising inequality, and whose political role was to provide voice to those feeling unjustly treated and to negotiate solutions to their grievances. Be it, Mr. Bre be it Brexit, be it Mr. Trump, nationalism or street violence, they all represent answers that we may perceive as inimical to an important question. How do we reforge agreement on redistributive justice for those who have lost out, either objectively or subjectively, from globalization, deepening technological innovation, including digitalization, innovation, including the casualization of labor, or responses to climate change? How then might we get, regain trust? And what are the consequences of a legacy of dismissed or weakened mediatory institutions? Take the mediating institutions out, and what will happen then as you confront what I have described? Evans asserts, a new social accord is essential in workplaces and communities to rebuild trust in fractured societies. It must reduce income inequality, support purchasing power and median incomes, address job quality, and counter the spatial concentration of discontent. Above all, it will entail reconstructing and reinforcing intermediary institutions, such as unions, which can provide voice and collective solutions. Finally, Jürgen Habermas, whom I so often re return to in the reading, he indeed of the Frankfurt School, he has made a seminal contribution in his move beyond the pessimism that we may have taken from Theodore Adorno in that fine collection of essays on the European Union called The Lure of Technocracy. Habermas articulates a coherent and wide-ranging defense of the project of European unification and of possible parallel developments towards a politically integrated world and society. And in developing his key concepts of transnationalization of democracy and the constitutionalization of international law, Habermas has offered some valuable suggestions as to how we might respond to circumstances such as the current impasse in which we find ourselves. He is casually critical of the incremental technocratic policies advocated by some member states that have been and continue to be imposed on populations of the economically weaker, crisis-stricken member states, and which has had the effect of undermining solidarity across the European Union. He argues an alternative 
that if the technocratic austerity centric approach is replaced by a deeper democratization of European institutions, the European Union has the possibility of fulfilling its core founding principles and ensuring that, as he puts it, rampant market capitalism can once more be brought under political control at a supranational level. Habermas defines a continuum in which capitalism and democracy are presented, if not at opposing ends of the spectrum, very much in conflict with each other. And he discusses with frightening accuracy the abject spectacle of a capitalist world society fragmented along national lines. Does this mean then that there is emerging, or perhaps has already formed, a fundamental incompatibility of democracy and capitalism? especially a capitalism that is so heavily enmeshed with an unfettered globalization which lacks legitimacy among much of the citizenry. Unlike Wolfgang Streeck, whom I suggest articulates a more pessimistic conclusion, Habermas asserts that two interventions would improve the democratic basis of the Union, joint political framework planning and revisions to the Lisbon Treaty to democratically legitimize the corresponding competencies. In particular, equal movement by Parliament and Council in the lawmaking process and equal accountability of the Commission to both institutions. These are Habermas's proposals, not mine. Habermas makes these proposals because, as he puts it, a generalization of interests that cuts across national borders is only possible in a European Parliament organized by parliamentary functions. He argues for more profound political integration in Europe so as to create a shift in the balance between politics and the market, which is continuing to the present day in the wake of the neoliberal self-disempowerment of politics. This disempowerment of politics manifested itself during the, the recent financial crisis and subsequent economic recessions across the European Union as pressure being exerted by the financial markets on the politically fragmented national budgets, which fostered a collectivizing, pejorative self-perception of the populations affected by the crisis. Some people were good, some people were bad, some people were hopeless. Habermas asserts that the response by markets lead governments, key international organizations and the mainstream neoliberal commentariat all contributed greatly to the punitive grounds on which assistance was offered to program countries by turning the donor and the beneficiary countries against each other and thus fomenting nationalism. Such an impasse repeating itself could be overcome if pro-European parties conduct joint transnational campaigns against the falsifying representation of social questions as national questions. It also requires, he argues, extending the monetary union into a supranational democracy, which could provide the institutional platform for reversing the neoliberal trend of recent decades. Again, I stress, these are Habermas's ideas. I articulate them as part of a contribution to a discourse. Above all, Habermas has argued in his other book, Europe, the Faltering Project, for a policy of gradual European integration in which key decisions about Europe's future are put in the hands of its peoples rather than what he calls the neoliberal orthodoxy. Are there any lessons we've learned then from the economic crisis? The self-regulating market and the long devastating period of austerity imposed on millions of European citizens. I believe there are many lessons in politics, policymaking, academia, the commentariat, citizens at large, who have reassessed what were sometimes strongly held beliefs with a newfound appreciation 
that the state does have important roles to play across all spheres of public policy, that good regulation does matter, be it in the financial, construction or healthcare sectors, all sectors in which we in Ireland have seen the need for such of under, and the consequences of under-regulation, indeed lack of enforcement. The legitimation crisis neither is it confined to the European Union or its members. The role of the state will be crucial in approaching issues such as climate change, sustainability. And there is a serious gap. What of institutions, and I refer to them already, not answerable to Parliament, people, or their laws? It's an issue that was addressed by the President of Greece, Prokopios Pavlopoulos, in the Aristotle Lecture in 2016. He spoke of non-state entities of international scope, divide of democratic legitimacy, so-called financial markets, credit rating agencies, and the declining course of social welfare and the rule of law. Looking ahead, my vision that I suggest is of a Europe with excellent public services at its core. Good jobs in the public sector means quality services for citizens. And we must remember that the services the public sector delivers are not a cost to society, but an investment in cohesion of our communities. And this message, I believe, must be taken to the heart of Europe. I suggest that what is unaccountable is speculative flows of insatiable capital, a global, unregulated, financialized version of economy, that it represents the greatest threat to democracy, the greatest source of an inevitable, terrible conflict, and the greatest obstacle to us achieving an end to global poverty or achieving sustainability. In conclusion, I return to where I began. To Schiller's A Note to Joy, rereading the poem before my journey here, I was struck again by its powerful message of freedom and solidarity. Schiller's first stanza concludes with the powerful lines, every man becomes a brother where thy gentle wings abide. And this expression of solidarity and tolerance reminds us forcibly of the purpose, the guiding principle of the European Union, solidarity between our nations and solidarity with others. What does solidarity demand of us now? I say to so many young people. I say it must be intergenerational, be defined as a multidimensional concept embracing ecosystem society, culture and economy, both trade and fiscal. And there must be a joint approach to bringing what is unaccountable, what is undermining public trust in democracy, what has no concept of citizenry, but one of insatiable consumers under control. But solidarity is not the only message that we can take from Schiller's poem. For his was a lengthy work, and only the first stanzas were put to music by Beethoven. The composer was himself perhaps aware that not all the stanzas may have been appreciated by his then masters. For these stanzas reflect idealistic calls for what must be done to create a better world. The poem, after all, in its fullness, appeals for the millions to strive for a better world. I quote, for help for the innocent, for speaking truth to friend and foe alike, for honour only to those who merit it, and for an end to those who lie. 
It was a call in its day for rescue from tyrants, mercy to villains, and hope until the dying hours. The poem expressed the essence of European values, idealistic values, undoubtedly, but values which we must continue to strive to fulfill. A note of joy represents values that must be given concrete, tangible reality in Europe, offered to and become the experience of the European street responding then to the necessary transformations of this relationship between economy and society in which I've reflected in this address, I suggest is an urgent priority. In times that are marked in the absence of an adequate and inclusive discourse, and I believe is a consequence by the rise of an ever more rancorous rhetoric, one which is frequently founded in despair, alienation, enemy, exclusion, and one which produces statements from the unaccountable that seek to divide us against one another on grounds of ethnicity, religion and nationality. This Europe we speak must be one in which such hateful squabbles are replaced with openness, inclusivity, cohesion, solidarity and a recognition that the shift to a new gendered ecological social paradigm of wealth creation and distribution is pursued together and without delay, and not just for our benefit in the European Union, but for the future generations whom we would wish to inhabit, a peaceful, harmonious world that is supported by a sustainable vision of economy and society, respectful of nature, and enriched by a diversity of cultures. Garmila Mahogi, thank you.